1: You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 16. Marcy Belez. It was 1985. 12-year-old Marcy Belez was excited. On Saturday, August 3rd, she and her best friend Laura had taken the bus downtown from their neighborhood in East Central Spokane, Washington, and gone shopping. Marcy had saved up her own money to buy a pretty new dress and some accessories. The $4 frock was a lovely lavender color, and she bought cute black jelly shoes, pink socks, and some fun earrings to complement the outfit. That Saturday afternoon at home, Marcy put on her new stuff and showed off the outfit proudly. There's something special about being that age and earning your own money to buy something you really want. Marcy had worked hard as a babysitter, and since the family didn't have many luxuries, buying herself the dress and other things was a real treat, and a first for her. But Marcy was hurt that rather than admire her new outfit, her four sisters were mad at her. She owed one of them money, and the siblings felt that Marcy should have paid up instead of shopping for herself. They said some mean things to Marcy about how she looked trashy, hurting her feelings the way only sisters can do. And Marcy burst into tears and walked out the front door of the Belez home around 8 p.m. on Saturday night. Marcy walked over to her friend Laura's house. She was upset and didn't want to go home. She and Laura walked over to nearby Riverside Park, where local teens often hung out. They met with a group of boys there who told them about a party. Laura asked Marcy to stay over at her house, but Marcy said she wanted to go to the party. She said goodbye to her friend and walked away alone. That was the last time she was seen. Later on Saturday night, after calling over to Laura's family's house, the Belez's found out that Marcy was not there, and she had not come home. The family scattered, searching the area, calling all their friends, reaching out to everyone they could think of, but no one had seen Marcy. On Sunday, her mom reported Marcy missing. The description Mrs. Belez provided to police was that her missing daughter was 12 years old, white, 5 foot 1 inch tall, 90 pounds, with short, reddish-brown hair, green eyes, and teeth that needed orthodonture. And she was wearing a lavender dress, black plastic shoes, and pink socks. Some of the early reporting in this case labeled Marcy a runaway, but that wasn't really true. The Belez girls were generally allowed to stay out with their friends, and their family didn't always know who they were with or where they were. Marcy's mom did not become concerned enough to call the police until Sunday and when she told them that Marcy had argued with her sisters and walked out, the leap was made to the girl being a runaway. But none of her friends or her sister's friends knew where the 12-year-old was. It was not until Monday, August 5th, that there was news. Around 10.20 a.m., the owner of a tow yard and auto repair and resale business called Lawrence Towing called Spokane Police with a terrible report. Police arrived at the dilapidated house that doubled as the office of Lawrence Towing. They met the owner there, and he led deputies to an unfenced, overgrown area behind the building. The body of a young girl was lying in the weeds and dirt underneath a rusted boom truck, surrounded by broken-down cars, old tires, and two dilapidated shacks. She was lying on her side. She had been stabbed multiple times. The girl was naked below the waist except for little pink socks. She was still wearing her new lavender dress, which was cut to shreds. One of her black jelly shoes, the kind that were big in the mid-80s, lay in the dusty gravel nearby. Detectives must have been horrified to observe the savage little body lying in its grungy, gritty graveyard. No weapon was found at the scene, but detectives quickly surmised, based on the dried blood soaked into the dust, that the girl had been stabbed where the body lay. Spokane police put together the description they had of a purported runaway, Marcy Belez, with the brutalized little body they had found in the tow yard, wearing the remnants of a lavender dress. Detectives visited the Belez home and showed Marcy's mother photos of the body that had been found. She thought it was Marcy, but could not be sure. I suspect that part of her did not want to be sure. Marcy's sister, Bia, remembers when the detectives came to the door. She said she and her sisters knew it was Marcy. Her sister, Donna, who was 17 at the time, says as soon as she saw the photo of Marcy's battered face, she recognized her little sister. To be sure, Mrs. Belez obtained Marcy's dental records so the medical examiner could make a definitive ID. On August 6th, he did. It was Marcy. The medical examiner, Dr. George Lindholm, conducted the autopsy late Monday at Holy Family Hospital. He determined that the cause of death was blood loss due to stabbing. Marcy had been stabbed 29 times on her body, mostly in the chest but also in the back. She also had two stab wounds to her head and temple and bruising on her face. Her throat was slashed. All these wounds were made by a very sharp double-edged blade. She had also been sexually assaulted, and semen was collected from Marcy's body and preserved in evidence. The lack of defensive wounds on the 12-year-old's body showed that she was easily overpowered by her assailant, which, since she weighed just 92 pounds, was a surprise to no one. The medical examiner also collected a pubic hair from Marcy's body that was of unknown origin. The M.E. estimated that Marcy had been killed sometime on the 4th, Sunday, possibly in the early morning hours. Let's talk a little bit about Marcy. Marcy Leah Belez was born on October 28, 1972. Her parents' names never appeared in news articles or media about the case, so I'm not going to name them here. At 12 years old, Marcy lived with her family at 1718 East 3rd Avenue near Altamont in East Spokane. Marcy was the fourth of the five Belez girls. She was in the sixth grade at nearby Grant Elementary School. A little bit of background into the neighborhood and the family is necessary in order to better understand this case. It was 1985, and many people in Spokane didn't lock their doors and left their keys in their cars overnight. The Belez family home was in a bit of a rough and tumble area. Their home fronted on the freeway, I 90. The neighborhood was working class people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. The Belez girls were given free rein to roam the neighborhood, hang out at Liberty Park and Riverside Park, and go to Zip's drive-in with an older crowd of boys. This area abutted East Sprague Avenue, which back then was a sort of red-light district. Marcy was used to tagging along with her older sisters and their friends, including boys and young men. They would ride around in cars, drink beer, and go to parties. The 12-year-old was usually with one of her siblings, and the girls were comfortable hitching rides and going on drives with guys. It was not uncommon for the girls to spend the night out with friends or even camp out in a park. A police affidavit in the case would later state, quote, Marcy was a 5-foot, 95-pound female who, although she lived with her parents, was streetwise and had a tendency to hang out at Riverfront Park with her friends, accept rides from strangers, and tended to emulate her older sisters. In short, Marcy was exposed at a young age to much older teens and young men and was comfortable hanging out with people she didn't really know. Marcy's friend Laura says she remembers Marcy as someone who was fun-loving and a genuine, loyal friend. Marcy's sister Bia says she was someone who saw the best in everyone. No one would have wanted to hurt her. But someone did. Police began a thorough and painstaking examination of the tow lot property. It was located less than a mile from Marcy's house and is now part of an industrial park. No one had really been around the tow lot on Sunday, and although an employee of the lot lived in the house that doubled as the office, a canvas of the area revealed that no one had heard any screams or seen anything on Saturday night or Sunday. Investigators found a boot print embedded in the dust, and tire tracks that showed a vehicle, not those sitting in the repair lot, had recently driven away from the area. These fresh tire tracks led to the logical conclusion that Marcy had been brought to this location in a car, and the attack probably began in the vehicle. Not all of Marcy's accessories were found at the scene. Her second shoe and one of her earrings were never found and it didn't make sense that the attacker would pick those things up, yet leave the other shoe behind. This led investigators to surmise that something went down in the car before it ended on the ground in the junkyard. The physical evidence at the scene told investigators that the attack on Marcy had begun somewhere else, likely inside whatever vehicle had brought her there. There wasn't a blood trail through the tow lot, but there was a blood pool on the ground near Marcy's body that indicated that her attacker had been standing over her in that spot while stabbing her. But it wasn't enough blood to have accounted for 31 stab wounds. She must have been bleeding before being dragged and or carried to her resting place. Marks in the gravel pointed to Marcy being dragged across the ground. Chillingly, a leather knife sheath with a clip lay near this blood pool. It would have fit onto a 5-inch blade and was specifically made for a Gerber knife with a dagger-like double-edged blade. Likely, it had been clipped onto the boot or belt of the killer and had fallen off in the chaos. The knife was never found, but it was believed that the Gerber would have inflicted wounds like those found in Marcy's autopsy. Detectives formed the theory that Marcy had been raped and stabbed in the car, and then dragged about 30 feet through the dirt, stabbed a few more times to finish her off, and deposited under the boom truck. The amount of blood present there showed that Marcy was still alive when she was tucked away, out of sight. Crime scene techs also collected lifts of a set of prints from a vehicle that the suspect was believed to have touched. Investigators had a hard time figuring out the timeline of events after Marcy left her home on Saturday evening. She had last been seen by Laura after 8 p.m., and it was believed that she was killed sometime early on Sunday. So where was she in the intervening time period? As I indicated earlier, police gathered information from Marcy's family that Marcy often traveled between her house and downtown Spokane and areas near Sprague. She liked to hang out at Riverfront Park and a place called the Club Cafe at West 408 and a half Sprague. The 12-year-old would take the bus, hitchhike, walk, or get rides with older friends of hers and her sisters. This meant, of course, that Marcy could have gone almost anywhere that night. Police had their work cut out for them. The tow lot where Marcy was killed was at East 811 Pacific. It was located in an area frequented by transients, as it was stated in the media, near some area homeless encampments and charities in downtown Spokane that supported the homeless population. So, police quickly turned their attention to what they deemed this somewhat unsavory crowd. A headline in the Spokane Chronicle blared, quote, Hobo camps raided as part of murder probe. Fifteen police officers, aided by Burlington Northern Railroad personnel, descended on the encampments near the Spokane River and along the railroad tracks, hoping to dig up clues as to who could have killed Marcy. This, from the Spokesman Review, quote, "...a boat and a helicopter were used to find the encampments. Authorities interviewed 115 people, mostly transients, in an area spanning two square miles between Division and Havana Streets." Police recovered a stolen motorcycle and arrested two people on outstanding warrants, but did not turn up any suspects for Marcy. Frustrated, Detective Lieutenant Robert Van Leuven told the media that, quote, there's no question we're starting from square one. Police considered whether Marcy's murder could be related to another stabbing death, this one of a young woman named Debbie Finnern. Debbie had been killed in June 1984, just 15 blocks from where Marcy was found, and her murder remained unsolved. But no connections were apparent, and this angle appears to have been a dead end. Debbie's case remains unsolved. In an interesting bit of nascent profiling, before criminal profiling was its own law enforcement specialty, Spokane detective Mark Bennett described the unknown suspect in Marcy's case as someone who was likely motivated by rage toward women rather than sexual urges. He said, quote, We'd like to solve this case and get him the help he needs. It was recognized that Marcy's murder was one of overkill and extreme violence, especially given the vulnerability and defenselessness of the child victim. Captain Blad Arleff of the Spokane PD, whom I spoke with about this case, says it was evident that the killer had lost control and frenetically inflicted 31 stab wounds, overkill and unchecked rage that indicated that perhaps someone younger, a man in his teens or early 20s, had been the killer. The tire tracks and boot prints in the tow lot didn't provide any helpful clues as to their origins. The fingerprints, which came from a smeared, greasy handprint on a Ford Pinto near Marcy's body, were never linked to anyone in APHIS, and they are not believed to actually be related to the case. Typically in murder investigations, detectives delve into their victim's life to see who is closest to them, if they have any enemies, and if they harbored any secrets. But in the case of murdered tweens, there is not often the level of complexity that there tends to be with an adult homicide victim. Kids' darkest secrets usually involve crushes or perhaps shoplifting a Snickers bar. So detectives' interests were piqued when Marcy's mom told them that she had some information she felt she had to reveal. It could lead them to a suspect. It turned out that Marcy had confided in her mom that she had been molested, She had met an older teenage boy named Jamie through one of her older sisters. Jamie had picked her up to go out on a joyride in his car and sexually assaulted her during the outing. The Belezes filed a Spokane police report, but kept Marcy's secret from her older sisters, as she did not want them to know. The sexual assault case was transferred to the Spokane County Sheriff's Office because of where it had allegedly occurred. And it's not clear what happened to the case there. It was still pending when Marcy was killed. But Jamie denied raping Marcy. He said that they had had consensual sex. And disturbingly, he had told some people that he was going to get back at Marcy for ratting him out. So this Jamie was suspect number one in the eyes of investigators. A shady teenage boy who had raped a 12-year-old yet called it consensual and then had threatened to get even with her after she told sounds like a prime suspect to me. But he said he had an alibi, which was that he was at his grandmother's house on Saturday night. His family members confirmed this. And investigators had no concrete evidence that Jamie was their man, just their own suspicions given Marcy's reporting of the incident in which he raped her and rumors that he had vowed retribution. Not enough to make a murder charge stick. They moved on to other suspects. Remember that I said earlier that Laura and Marcy had encountered some teen boys at Liberty Park that Saturday night. Laura told police that they were friendly and that Marcy knew one of them, a guy named Brett, who was maybe 15. He told Marcy about a party that night and if she wanted to go, to meet him under a bridge. The party was at an apartment not far away. Marcy told Laura not to tell anyone that she was going, and Laura believes that when Marcy said goodbye and walked away, she was going to meet up with the boys. Investigators believe that Marcy went to that party on Saturday night. It was in an apartment inside a house located at 1125 East Newark Avenue. It wasn't far from Marcy's own house, 0.9 miles to be exact. The locations of the party, the Belez home, and the tow yard form a triangle over about a mile and a half. The party was a gathering of high school age kids who were drinking and doing what teenagers do, but eventually the party merged with another party in the apartment below, which was young adults. As I said, Marcy was comfortable hanging out with older people, but I do think it's strange that these teens and young adults were okay with a twelve year old partying with them. Marcy was five foot two, so perhaps they assumed she was older, although she was certainly not dressed older. Several party guests recalled seeing a young girl in a purple dress around 10 p.m. who was asking for a ride home, but no one saw her leave. Needless to say, police wanted to speak with this guy Brett who had supposedly taken Marcy to the party. They tracked down a teenager named Brett who knew Marcy, but he denied being at the park or the party that night. In fact, he said he hadn't seen her in a month. Police worked in vain to find a Brett who had been at the party with Marcy that evening. They even went through the high school yearbook and spoke with each guy named Brett, to no avail. Was someone lying? Was Laura mistaken? It was impossible to know. The investigation did uncover another Brett, a guy who was in his 20s and married. He had called the Belez home on several occasions to talk to Marcy and possibly hung out with the Belez sisters. Police brought him in for an interview and noted that he was exceedingly nervous. Also, he had abrasions on his face that he claimed came from a fight with his brother, but, of course, investigators wondered if they could have come from a little girl defending herself. This Brett claimed to have an alibi for Saturday night. He was in Seattle until 1 a.m. Sunday morning. Since investigators didn't know when Marcy was killed, this wasn't exactly an ironclad alibi. Brett remained on the suspect list. Captain Arleth told me that this case was rife with adult creepers like this guy. That's one reason why, over the years, investigators interviewed 257 people in Marcy's case, and 87 of them were considered potential suspects. There were large numbers of lecherous older guys, some of whom were married, who knew the Belez girls, or drove in from Liberty Lake or even Idaho to hang out at Zip's drive-in and drink beer with teenage girls. One guy they interviewed was in his 40s. I'd like to think that this type of behavior would be frowned upon if not reported today, but things were different in the 80s. Anyway, most of the 87 potential suspects were young men who were from the neighborhood or knew and socialized with the Belez girls, as well as the young men at the party Marcy had attended. But none of them rose to the level of prime suspect, and none of them did it.
0: Murders, rapes, assaults,
1: and every other heinous act people commit. How are these crimes solved? And why do people commit these evil acts? I'm Jared Bradley, the host of the podcast, All Things Crime. And together with experts in every step of the investigative process, we explore how crime is solved. We launch new episodes every week. Subscribe now, wherever you listen to podcasts, to make sure you don't miss an episode of All Things Crime.
0: Soon after
1: Marcy's murder, Spokane's secret witness program, a precursor of sorts to today's Crime Stoppers Anonymous Tip Clearinghouse, pulled together a $2,000 reward for information. But it was in vain. It seemed no one knew anything or no one was willing to talk. Marcy's sister Donna said the Belez family was broken by Marcy's murder and splintered because the sisters were convinced that Marcy knew her killer. They became suspicious of all the guys they knew. Donna said she accused guy friends and broke up friendships over her mistrust of people. Most of the Belez family eventually moved to Portland. Over the years, they gave up hope that the case would ever be solved. And for 35 years, it wasn't. A very rudimentary DNA profile of Marcy's killer was developed in 1989, the infancy of DNA. But, of course, they had no matches. The case stalled, It was reinvigorated in 1999 by Detective Mindy Connolly, who submitted more evidence from the case to the WSP crime lab, but nothing came of this either. Skip ahead a few years. In the early 2000s, with the advent of DNA testing, detectives re-examined the case with an eye toward a scientific solution. In 2002, Detective Mark Burbridge discovered an intact sample taken at Marcy's autopsy, a vaginal swab containing seminal fluid. From this sample, DNA analyst William Cullnane of the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab was able to develop a complete male profile. They entered the profile into the still relatively new CODIS system, but there was no match. Of course, the DNA profile could not give investigators a name, but it could be used to eliminate or pinpoint the original suspects in the case. Over the years, detectives had narrowed the list of 87 potential suspects down to a pool of 12 likelies, people like Brett and Jamie, whom they had never been able to 100% rule out. Now they had a way to do that. One by one, they contacted these men, took a sample from each of them for DNA testing, and compared their profiles to that of Marcy's killer. And one by one, they were eliminated. After two decades of investigation, the top suspects were proven to be innocent. It was a frustrating moment for investigators, to say the least. They resigned themselves to just running the killer's DNA profile through CODIS repeatedly. But each time, it led nowhere. If her killer had struck again, he had done so undetected. Finally, in March of 2019, the Spokane Police Department decided to explore the use of forensic genealogy to tackle some of its most stubborn cold cases. Several of the detectives had learned about the Golden State Killer case and Parabon NanoLabs technology. In order to qualify for forensic genealogy, they learned, the cases had to have viable forensic evidence that would yield a genetic profile with a sufficient number of markers. Marcy's case was first on their list to test. In 2019, Detective Brian Hammond worked with the State Crime Lab to isolate the suspect profile and submit it to Parabon to conduct forensic genealogy and try to hone in on a suspect once and for all. Parabon produced a phenotype report that the Caucasian suspect had green or blue eyes and brown or blonde hair with a reddish tint. As for the forensic genealogy component... Parabon came back about eight weeks after receiving the profile with some good, but tricky, news. When they entered the suspect's genetic code into GEDmatch, they came up with two distant relatives of the suspect. But these two relatives were not related to each other. This meant that the genealogists could trace back the lineage of each of these distant relatives through the generations to see where they intersected, and then follow that connection down the family tree to figure out the suspect's identity— This research took months and months, and finally resulted in Parabon being able to focus on two branches of a family tree, both of whom bore a unique genetic marker that was traceable back to immigrants from Russia in the late 19th century who had settled in North Dakota. One of these branches had a male member with ties to Washington and a criminal record, but further digging revealed that his paternal lineage was actually not linked to this family. In other words, his father was not who he thought he was. This left one branch left, a family with ties to North Dakota and males in the right age range who lived in the Spokane area in the mid-1980s. There were four possible suspects in this remaining branch. The four names were all men who could have been the killer of Marcy Belez based on their sex, age at the time of the murder, and ties to the Spokane area. Three of the four were still alive. Detectives approached two of them, telling them that they were trying to close an unsolved murder, and they both willingly submitted DNA samples. No match. This left two brothers, whose father was from North Dakota. One of the brothers, whom I am referring to by his first initial, R, willingly gave his DNA. It wasn't him. The other brother, Clayton Carl Giese, was the killer by process of elimination. He had been dead for 31 years. Left with trying to reconstruct the genetic profile of someone who was long deceased, detectives had little choice but to contact Gisey's family members to obtain their DNA. They already had his brother R's DNA from his buccal swab, but they needed samples from other family members to increase the amount of data they had for comparison. Quoted on KXLY.com, Sergeant Zach Stormont said, quote, For the police to show up at your door and raise this issue of someone you buried a long time ago that you cared about a great deal, that's tough for anybody. I asked myself that. How would I respond? But at the end of the day, they want their privacy. We're not going to name them, but I'll give them credit. They stepped up and did the right thing. Sergeant Stormont was referring to the elderly mother and now adult daughter of Clayton Geezy. I'm going to call the daughter by her initials C.R. When approached by detectives, Gize's daughter C.R. willingly gave her DNA for comparison purposes. The results, according to the WSP crime lab analyst William Colnane's report, were, quote, "...it is 140 million times more likely that genetic testing results obtained from the vaginal smear swabs would be observed if the source of the profile is the biological father of C.R., rather than an unrelated individual selected at random from every U.S. population. A likelihood ratio greater than one million indicates very strong evidence to support paternity. In other words, the statistical likelihood that the killer of Marcy Belez was the father of CR was astronomically high. Then, detectives contacted the mother of the deceased Clayton Geezy, a Norma Giese, now Curry, who was still alive. She provided a DNA sample willingly as well and DNA analyst William Cullnane reported that, quote, It is 2.2 million times more likely that the genetic testing results obtained from the vaginal smear swabs would be observed if the source of the profile is the biological son of Norma Geezy Curry rather than an unrelated individual selected at random from the U.S. population. In other words, Norma Geezy was almost certainly the mother of the suspect who had killed Marcy. All of this testing allowed DNA analysts to determine with near certitude that Geezy was indeed the killer, because they could determine 50% of his genetic makeup from his mother Norma and see from CR's profile the DNA he had contributed to her. Investigators had no luck finding any fingerprints on file for Clayton Geezy, and he had never served time in the military, but they were able to dig up some circumstantial evidence that supported their theory that Clayton Geezy had killed Marcy. Even though decades had passed, Spokane Detective Brian Hammond was able to track down and interview the man who had held the Newark Street party that Marcy was last seen at that night. The man told Detective Hammond that he did have a buddy named Clay or Clayton who was at the party. The party host did not know Clayton's last name and said he had only met him maybe five times in total. But he was able to describe him. He had lighter brown hair and a mustache. He also had a temper and was easily angered he was very jealous of other men around his girlfriend, a blonde teenager whom the party host did not know. But the detective knew that Gizzi went on to marry a blonde young woman who became the mother of C.R. and her brother, whose first initial is J. And Norma, Clayton Gizzi's mother, provided a photo of her son, which, according to the police affidavit, quote, does show him to have the physical attributes as provided in Parabon Snapshot's phenotyping report. But even all this wasn't enough. They had to be sure-sure. On March fourth, 2020, Spokane detectives obtained a search warrant to exhume the body of Clayton Carl Giese. They wanted to be 100% certain beyond any doubt that the familial DNA they had followed to him was correct. Giese had been buried in Lot 302, Plot 6, of the Saltese Cemetery in Greenacres, Washington. He was embalmed and placed in a plywood casket, which was placed in a standard concrete vault. And this had all taken place in 1985, 35 years earlier. DNA identification experts warned investigators that it was likely that the body would be extremely decomposed. They would need a piece of bone to be able to extract DNA. If there was more to the remains, that would improve the quality of the samples, but that could not be expected after all those years had passed. At 9 o'clock a.m. on the morning of March 5th, 2020, a tractor went to work on the grave at Salty's Cemetery and dug down to the still intact casket. Detectives watched as the casket was opened. The remains inside were fully skeletonized. Under the supervision of the detectives, forensic scientists examined the skeleton, determined which bone to test that would least disturb the remains, and took their sample right then and there they also removed a bone, hair, and teeth from the corpse. When they had what they needed, the casket was closed back up and put back in the ground, and the headstone reset as if nothing ever happened. Tests on the genetic material extracted from the remains in the coffin showed that it was a perfect match to their suspect in Marcy's case. In fact, the match was so exact as to be the strongest that the investigators had ever seen. There was a 1 in 1.1 nonillion, that's 30 zeros, chance that anyone other than the deceased suspect was the killer of Marcy Belez. In other words, as William Culnane said, quote, it's a no million times more likely that the DNA at the crime scene came from Clayton Gheezey than from anybody else. That's pretty definitive. So who was this guy? Clayton Carl Geeze was born on September ninth, nineteen sixty three, in Glendive, Montana, to parents Raymond and Norma Gheezey. He had a brother and a sister. He spent the first 19 years of his life in Missoula before the family moved to the Spokane area in 1983, settling in Liberty Lake, where his father was a custodian for the West Valley School District. At the time of Marcy's 1985 murder, Geezy was almost 22 years old and married with a son and a daughter, C.R. and J. Investigators don't know exactly what Geezy did for work, but suspect that he was some kind of laborer. Virtually nothing is known about him. When investigators spoke to his daughter, C.R., in 2019, she told them that her mother, Gisey's wife, had told her over the years that her father had anger issues and a problem with alcohol. But the most intriguing part to investigators was that Geezy's Spokane address, where he lived at the time of Marcy's murder, was at 3908 East 2nd, just a mile and a half from Marcy's home.
0: It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography, more info available at heftyrenew.com. In 1989,
1: 4 years after he killed Marcy, Geezy was living in Green Acres and was still married. Around 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, January 29th, Geezy flipped his car off Appleway Boulevard, 11 miles east of Spokane. Police said that both speed and alcohol were a factor contributing to Gizzi's loss of control of the vehicle on a curve near the I-90 interchange. Gizzi was not wearing a seatbelt, and he was ejected from the car as it rolled. The 25-year-old was pronounced dead at the scene. Gizzi's daughter, C.R., said that she did not know her biological father well because she was only two when he died, but she had heard that he had a terrible temper. Her brother, Jay, chose not to cooperate with police and submit a DNA sample for comparison. But of course, now, investigators did not need one from him. If Gizzi had any kind of history of violence against women, pedophilia, or other crimes, they are not known. Captain Arleth told the Spokesman Review, quote, He had a very minor criminal background here. The database shows one arrest for, I think, a marijuana possession charge just a few months before the car crash that killed him. According to the police affidavit, Geezy had two misdemeanor citations, and they both occurred in the days before his death. The police reports from those incidents describe him as six foot one with light brown hair and blue eyes, just as predicted by Parabon. Clayton Geezy's name was not among the 257 persons interviewed by investigators on Marcy's case. In fact, his name was not in the case file at all. Investigators do not believe that he knew Marcy Belez, and her sisters had never heard of him. Detectives theorize that Geezy was the man named Clayton who was at the party that Marcy was last seen at that night, and he offered her a ride home. We know that people at the party said she was looking for a ride. Or he could have been driving by on his way home three miles away at 3900 East 2nd Avenue in Spokane, and picked up the little girl, who was probably anxious to avoid walking alone in the dark the half mile to her house so late at night. But instead of taking her home, Geezy pulled into the deserted parking lot at the tow yard. It was a dark, out-of-the-way place that would afford him privacy on that Saturday night to do what he wanted with his 12-year-old victim. Whether he had any connection to the tow yard is unknown. And of course, we have no idea why he chose to kill little Marcy so violently with 30 stab wounds. Recall, though, that two people who knew him told police that he had a violent temper. Perhaps Marcy tried to run from him, and he lost it and killed her in a fit of rage. We will never know. When detectives contacted Marcy's sister Donna Van Zant to inform her that after three and a half decades, they finally knew who had killed her sister, she was in shock. She told KHQ, quote, I'm still in disbelief, but I'm happy at the same time. I feel free like a big weight has been lifted off me. Another sister told Foreign News Now KLXY that she has found comfort in knowing Gizi can no longer hurt anyone else. She also sent her regards to Gizzy's family because she said she knows what it is like to lose someone so young. I'm always awed by these acts of kindness by the victims' families toward those of their killers, toward those of their loved ones killers. I'm not sure that I would be capable of the same. Clayton Geese's profile is now in CODIS, but he has not been connected to any other cases. Captain R. said at the press conference announcing the closure of Marcy's case, quote, You know, I mean justice in this case? Maybe not. The guy's deceased, but closure, I think, for the family and the community. In a touching postscript to the solving of Marcy's murder, newswoman Haley Gunther of KHQ aired a public plea for help for the Belez family to pay for a headstone for Marcy. Money was tight when Marcy died, and the Belez family noted after the exhumation that Clayton Geezy had a customized headstone marking his grave. Yet Marcy's grave was marked only with a small, anonymous marker. Thanks to the request for donations aired on KHQ, two anonymous donors covered the cost in full. Marcy's new headstone was completed and installed in early 2021. Donna told KHQ that Marcy would have loved it. After 35 years, Marcy Belez's case is finally closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they are coming for you. Thank you to Captain Brad Arleth of the Spokane PD for speaking with me about this case. And now I'd like to play a promo for you of a podcast I think you'll like called Ye Old Crime. Do you love true crime but are looking for something different? It sounds like a sitcom. It does. The, vendors. the kind of assholes you should probably leave them alone. Do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true? Her wig is enormous, but it is lifted off her head by a monkey. Do you love history, but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school? It's just got a almost where you hang your horns sign. <laughs> Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. (laughs) Then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye Old Crime. Where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Bettencourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Bettencourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID podcast on Twitter, and on Facebook at DNA ID podcast check out our other collaborative podcasts, Seen in the Crime and Missing Persons.